0: Okay. All right. My little guy's going to stay there. And if there's any, anybody else, you listen up. So just real quick kids. Right. That's okay. Maybe she'll come up when she comes in. All right, girls, how you doing? Good. Good? Excellent. What do we have here? What are the two things that we see here? Um, a Christmas tree and presents. Oh, Okay. We see a Christmas tree and presents. What is this? That's a nativity, you know, the big word, right? Okay, good. So we have these two things. And it's kind of funny because these are both things about what we do at Christmas. They're they're kind of competing in some way. So it's sort of funny that we have them next to each other. So I I know, because I like presents too. So I know that when people say, Christmas is coming, are you excited? This little one's been trying to open her presents already for days. So when you think of Christmas and you're anticipating Christmas... Let's be honest, you probably think of this over here, right? And you think of all the presents under the tree. And then you do remember, oh yeah, there's this thing too, which is neat. But that's really cool, right? So, here's what I was thinking. that over Because you're going to do that. Because presents are just exciting, right? Do you have presents that you hope to get this year? Is there one thing you really hope for? What is it? A Barbie camper. I that. Nice. What about you? What do you hope you get? The baby fairy finder. The baby fairy finder. Okay. What well, I really want is a dog. A dog. Okay. All right, so you've heard it, folks. Okay, so here's the thing. Here's a challenge for you for the next month, because Christmas is actually a Sunday this year. So, if you come to church on Sunday, it will be Christmas Sunday. So, adults know we're not having a Christmas Eve service, because Christmas Day is actually the Sunday. So, that's, I know, hard for some to come on Christmas Day. So, that's going to be our gathering on Christmas morning at 10.30. So, if you come back on Christmas Sunday, that's also a family Sunday. It's mainly just going to be a lot of singing in a short sermon but you'll have something too and I'm going to have a special present for you if you come with this there's a challenge so you can't help but be excited about the tree and presents and that's okay but this little baby here that little baby right there is the present given to the whole world That and that's actually why we give each other presents now we give each other presents because um, tradition has it That a guy named St. Nicholas gave presents out, who was a a priest, and he helped people. Our family celebrates that on December 5th with our kids, and we get chocolates and and a toy and shoes. That's what they do on St. Nicholas Day. And he gave gifts because God gave us a gift named Jesus for the whole world, right? So that's kind of why we do gifts. So all month, when you think about gifts, try to remember that we do that because... God gave us a gift of his son, Jesus. And here's the way that you can maybe remember. Do you like building things? Do you like Legos? I love Legos. I'm I'm funny. I love getting Lego sets and building Legos. Um, And my kids do too. We have a lot of Legos. But maybe you don't like Legos. Maybe you like clay or Play-Doh or cardboard and painting. But if you will, over the next month, if you will build a nativity set... A cool nativity set. It could be out of Legos, it could be out of Play Doh, it could be cardboard or paper, and you paint it, whatever. If you'll build that, and then if you'll bring it on Christmas morning, then I'm going to have a special present for you, okay? Is that cool? All right. So build a special nativity, however you want, out of Legos or Play Doh or whatever it is that you want to do, and I'll have a special present for you on Yes, only a present if you build something. If not, go out into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm just kidding. It's in the Bible, folks. It's in the Bible, but I'm just kidding. Yes, you'll get a present, of course. Okay, let's pray. And then you can stay in here or you can go with Miss Becky and have a lot more fun and do something cool in the children's area. Okay? All right. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for children. Thank you for the revolutionary and frankly just crazy way that you chose to change the entire world through a baby. And I pray that you'd help us to just reflect on that and learn something and maybe just be a bit different this year as we celebrate Christmas and Advent. In your name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for hanging out, girls. Go have fun, okay?
1: All right, please stand for the reading of God's Word. The scripture this morning is Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Besides this, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day, not rel- reveling in, not in reveling and darkness. Sorry. Not in reveling and drunkenness. Not in debauchery and licentiousness. Not in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The word of the Lord.
0: Thank you, Dean. I'm mostly recovered from the cold that everybody's kind of had, so hopefully my my voice will, will hold out fine. Uh, today. And it sure, sure is good to, to be with you all again, to see you, uh, and it was exciting to do yesterday to do the Hanging of the Greens and begin this, this, uh, this journey of Advent uh, with you all uh, this year. When God created the world... Um, we won't go through all of it, but uh, we know that, that in the garden where it's depicted that God walked with Adam and Eve. Such a, a beautiful and interesting image. How they, they would, in the cool of the day, they would talk with each other. And then, of course, with sin and, and, and the, the, the exiting of, of the garden, that changes. Um, God then has a, a special role to play beginning to work the great plan of redemption. Uh, to renew all things and fix things, God eventually strikes up a conversation and a deal, a relationship with a guy named Abram. Uh, begins to speak with him. Nobody, you know, Abram doesn't know who he is. Takes a risk. Begins a long, long story. God connects with a a young man named Moses. Talks with him, and eventually, as the people of God begin to be formed. Uh, God eventually starts speaking to the people through the judges. If you remember this, I'm working fast here. God speaks to the judges, a weird way of organizing a people, and Israel didn't like it. They complained about it, and they wanted a king like everybody else. And God said, no, you don't want a king. It's not a good way of, of living. I want you to be weird and different and have judges. Well, we insist, God, we want a king. Okay, fine. So God gives them a king, and we know the first one looks the part, but he's not a good king. The second one does a great job, for the most part. A little sin here and there. Um, God speaks to the kings. But very, very quickly, the kings mess up and continue to mess up. And God stops speaking to the kings, and God speaks to the prophets. The prophets come along with the enviable task of telling the kings and the people of God what they are supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do which often gets them killed and they're not very liked. And God speaks through the prophets only. And then eventually God stops speaking through the prophets and is silent. The end of what we call the Old Testament ends with uh, what we often, scholars, will call the intertestamental period, which is a fancy way of saying between the testaments. And that period is, is known as a period of silence, where for about 400 years, we're told God says nothing to the people. He's done talking to the kings, he's done talking to the prophets, because no one will listen, and there's, he's silent. Nothing happens. So during this intertestamental period, near the end of this 400 year period, several groups within Israel begin to take this seriously and and notice, uh, God's not talking to us anymore, that's concerning, what should we do? And so there are five main responses. There are five main groups that arise during this period that uh, we see them all sort of in action uh, in Jesus's ministry and John the Baptist's ministry, which is kind of where we're coming into to the Advent story. So today, that's I want to I want to fill this gap, and I want you to help see what's happening. For for a very clear reason that we'll get to in a few minutes. So the first group, you could take notes. It's kind of a, 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 I am a teacher pastor, and people may comment about that. Hopefully that's good. So if you want to take notes, you can. The first group, you've heard of them, and the Pharisees. Okay, you've probably heard of the Pharisees before. This is the largest, most dominant group during this period. Most scholars think this is probably the group that leads, feeds into what we know today as, as modern Orthodox Judaism. Still around with us as the dominant voice within, within Israel today. Now, the, the, the word Pharisee uh, means separatist. Uh, what, what the Pharisees believed was that God spoke to us for a long time and stopped probably because we're not listening anymore. And so why don't we go back to the things that God said to us Pay attention and do those things, and that will probably, you know, re- re-win God's favor to us. So the Pharisees believed the Old Testament as a whole, what we know today, um, so the, the Torah, uh, the, the writings, the wisdom literature, all of it, that was all authoritative, they, all of what we call the Old Testament, they thought all of it was really important, all of it was worthy of studying and, and following. They also, um, if you know anything about this, the Mishnah or what the, the oral teachings, the rabbis would, would commentate on Scripture, and that would become the oral instruction or teachings, just kind of like a long sermon. They thought that was important as well. So what the Pharisees do is they say, God's not speaking to us, so let's get our scriptures, let's read them, let's return to this, let's follow the rules, hence they're known as legalists. And if we follow the rules well enough, we'll win God's favor back, God will speak to us. Uh, So often Pharisees are known as the legalists, and you see that with Jesus. Jesus is with Pharisees all the time, again, because they're kind of the dominant group, and they get a bad rap, but if you think about it, at least they're trying. They're trying very hard to be faithful to God. Uh, they just think that the way to do it is kind of a big, long, legalistic checklist, which does kind of make sense because God does give them some legalistic checklists in the Old Testament, if we're honest. Uh, Saul, a guy you may have heard of, whose name is changed to Paul, was, uh, was likely a, a Pharisee, a Pharisee leader, we know. Uh, And again, uh, most people think that Orthodox Judaism today really depends on and comes from this branch of Judaism. So again, Pharisees think legalism. Um, And yes, that can be negative. But let's give them a benefit of the doubt. They're trying to say, hey, God told us, like, for example, the Ten Commandments. God said follow these Ten Commandments. Now, of course, there's like thousands of other commandments too, right? So let's legalistically follow all of them. And and that will that will help us that will help God speak to us again, right? Maybe we're just not listening. Sometimes a teacher does that or a parent. I try to do that as a parent. I'm often not that good at it. Like instead of of yelling or getting frustrated, just being silent until they're done, right? It's a great tactic. My wife's good at it. I'm less good at that. Maybe that's what God is doing. Pharisees, legalism. The second group you've probably heard of this one as well. The Sadducees. in Bible class, I remember teachers would often say, the Sadducees are, they don't believe in the resurrection. They're so sad, you see, because they don't believe in the res- resurrection. Ha ha. Right? Um, but the Sadducees, that, mean, that means the righteous ones. That's what that term means, the righteous ones. Um, the Sadducees were the wealthy elite. So they were Jewish. They were, they were from the nation of Israel, but they often had important positions within the Roman establishment. Remember, they were occupied by Rome, uh, and they benefited from Roman rule. They liked the the way things worked. They got paid, uh, they liked the, it was orderly, it made sense, they had good jobs, and so they thought, you know, this must be God's will for Rome to be in charge. Maybe we're not good at governing our affairs. And so, they liked the way things work. They were very against the Jewish nationalistic movements, like movements for freedom that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, They just liked things to be the way they were. Um, Most likely, Caiaphas, the high priest, was a Sadducee, most likely. Um, They accepted... Pretty much all the Old Testament, except those oral teachings that I said, um, as as authoritative. So they they basically thought, let's follow the Old Testament teachings, um, but let's just accept that we have Roman rule and it works for us, and let's not rock the boat. Let's just kind of keep going. So their their response was, let's just go with the flow. It works, right? And it worked for them. Uh, Interestingly, they disappear completely in AD 70 when Rome gets tired of, of this and just destroys the temple in Jerusalem. Now nobody's benefiting anymore from Roman rule, so they disappear. Okay, so that's two, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The third are the Samaritans. We hear about them in the Gospels a lot too. The Samaritans are the people of Israel from the northern kingdom. Remember the kingdom's been split at one point, you got like two tribes up, ten tribes down. Uh, the ten, the two tribes in the north are conquered by the Assyrians and that never ends. They're taken into exile or they're occupied. And and because of that they have lived for a long time with with other deities, other religious teachings. So the, the easy way they're thought of is as syncretists. That's a it's a big word. But a syncretist is somebody who thinks, oh, we can kind of have our cake and eat it too. We can believe in all the gods. Right? So, um, you know, Jesus, Buddha, Allah Vishnu, why not? We can believe in all of them. That would be a syncretist today. Um, And that it's not a problem to many roads. They all lead to the same path, the, the same mountain, right? That's basically syncretism. Now, some, some were that way and some weren't. But they believed this because uh, the, the people of, of the southern kingdom, anyways, believed this because they've had these other practices and temples and things for so long up there. So they tended to view the Samaritans, uh, the people of Israel, anyways, they tended to view the, the Samaritans like, uh, sort of, pardon the pun, like red-headed stepchildren. You know that expression. Like, they're sort of related to us, but I don't really know how, and they're weird and different... And so we don't really like them. They're the, they're the uncle who comes to Christmas dinner that, you know, you don't really want him there, but he's going to come and you've got to put up with it. Uh, these are all crass. But this is how the Samaritans were viewed, which is why in the story of the Good Samaritan, uh, that makes no sense because they would never have ever wanted to be like a Samaritan at all because they hated Samaritans. They thought they were unfaithful people. The fourth group. There's two more. The fourth group are the Essenes. Uh, in in the Sunday school class, the Essenes were talked about about a month ago in the adult Sunday school class. We didn't know anything about the Essenes until 1947, when we we found the Qumran community and the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you know anything about that, the the uh, the Essenes were an ascetic community. To be an ascetic means that you like withdraw from society, kind of like a hermit kind of a hermetic type group that said, this is getting so crazy, we're going to leave society behind. We're going to go out and they lived in caves. They were really cool caves, but they were going to live in caves. We're going to start our own little community and we're going to just pray for them and be very different and, and pray that this will earn us God's favor and God will speak to us again. And they were so closed off that for like 1900 years, we didn't know about them until finally this, these scrolls, this, the, the evidence of their community was found. Many think that most likely John the Baptist was an Essene, um, was, a, was a good example of an Essene leader. He goes out into the wilderness and people come to him uh, for teaching, strict teaching, uh, very rigorous kind of old-fashioned holiness sort of teaching. Okay, So the Essenes leave behind Jerusalem and society and they say the only way to get God to speak to us again is to be really strict and to withdraw from the world. Uh, and eventually they were kind of destroyed and disappeared by, by Rome. Uh, the final response are the zealots. The Zealots are kind of the opposite of the enemies of the Sadducees. The Zealots are revolutionary nationalists, Jewish nationalists. They are tired of Roman rule and they're going to fight physically to get Rome out at all costs. They're the the William Wallace of, of the stories, if you know who that is um, the the Maccabees if you know the apocalyptic books uh, uh, the apocryphal books uh, first second and third Maccabees the uh, story of Hanukkah is about the Maccabean uh, revolt as uh, one example family who said we were going to fight and rebel against uh, against Rome and so their writings, their teachings tend to be pretty apocalyptic. You know, the world might end in this conflict with Rome, this great world power, but God wants us to prevail against them. Uh, the the historian Josephus says that it's most likely the these zealots that caused the event, well, I mean, of course, it was Rome that did it, but caused Rome or irritated Rome enough
1: to where they came
0: in and between sixty six and then seventy finally in a d destroy the temple in Jerusalem and and really do lots and lots of damage um, interestingly there 's a scene when uh, near the in the passion story, when the people are presented with an opportunity to have Jesus back, and they don 't want him, instead they want Jesus Barabbas. I always love that it's the choice of two Jesuses. Jesus Barabbas was a murderer. He was a zealot who had murdered a Roman in, in violent revolutionary you know, uh, skirmishes. And, and he is, is released. So the zealots, this kind of makes sense. This is what the people were waiting for, right? They were waiting for Rome to be overthrown, and they thought that the Messiah would come and lead a violent revolution against rome so you have these five strategies about what do we do with 400 years of silence and if you think about it of all five of these fear was the driving concern they are afraid now, i understand God hasn't spoken. We, we have stories of God speaking directly to our forefathers and mothers and, and through the kings and the, the prophets. And, and then there's nothing. There's no voice any longer. And, and the confusion and the fear. You see, they had a deficiency of hope. The way that they lived their lives the way that they oriented their groups, these these responses, it says, it testifies to what they believe about their hope. What hope they had or the lack thereof. They're driving concern. They were afraid. They wanted to... Why isn't God speaking? Their lives were oriented around that. But they don't necessarily testify to an abundance of hope. I think the same is true for us Today, I think that we respond to silence from God in the same way. You see, the way that we live our lives today reflects what we believe about tomorrow. The way that we live our lives today reflects our hope for tomorrow. So with all of that, we return to the passage that was read from Romans 13. Short passage You probably read it and looked at it for Sunday school today. So, verses 11 through 14. Paul says we live in the last days. We live in late times. But, if we're honest, these last days, I mean, this was written 2,000 years ago almost, seem to go on and on and on. Uh, He will return. I, I believe that. You don't have to, but that's a core part of the Christian faith is the belief that he will return again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. But these last days seem to stretch on and on and on. And while he will return, as Paul says here, and he says it over and over again, but we just have to be reminded because we have a fixation with this. We're not going to know when. Let us not delude ourselves and think that we're going to predict it, or some internet guy or some lady on Facebook is going to figure it all out for us, and then we can, we'll be ready. We're not meant to figure it out. This is told to us so many times in Scripture. Why anyone ever sits around with some crazy schematic, picking this and that, trying, it's going to be this date, is beyond me. Because if you just read it, it says over and over, you're not going to know, you're not meant to know, you shouldn't know. Just keep it simple and live like it's tomorrow. And be ready. It's real simple. We must live like we're ready. I once heard a pastor joke, and I think he's right, that um, Jesus is not going to ever return until we stop predicting when he's going to return. And I also read once that there's, I mean, almost, at least daily, there's a prediction or something. Like every day, you know, somebody thinks Jesus is going to return for this reason and that reason. Or they read the book of Revelation in the worst way possible, like it's some code that's going to tell you, you know, when it's going to happen. That's not what it is. It's not going to work that way when we could just read Jesus' words and the words of Paul and the words of John and the words of everyone else, he will return. We won't know when. We're not supposed to know when, but we're supposed to be ready. And so we wait and we hope. I think we predict because we're afraid, but also because it's hard to wait. I don't know about you, but I don't like silence. Silence. As my kids get older, and my life gets a little crazier. I like silence more. <laughs> but a little too much silence gets a bit too, too much. I, I, it gets awkward for most. Some people just love silence. But, but most, they need a little noise going on here and there. It's hard, or especially if you're asking a question and you're not given an answer. I know you think, oh, you're a pastor, so you don't struggle with these things. But I know what it's like when you, you wrestle and you ask questions and you want to know why is this happening and you don't hear a response. Well the person next to you is one of those who says they just hear from God audibly all the time and, and you don't, well, I'm, pro- I'm, I'm probably with you more than that other person. But good for them. I always joke, I don't get those emails from God. I do get scripture, though, and I feel like it speaks to us pretty clearly. So God stopped speaking to them. There was this awkward silence. Maybe the response was to just listen. Maybe it was to prepare. And in each of their ways, they were preparing also. I'm not. They're not all wrong. All of these five responses, they do reveal fear, but they're also trying to listen. They're trying to prepare. As we read here in Romans 13, They all represent an attempt to live into the light. And that's our challenge in Advent, is to take the silence that's there, which, frankly, in our noisy, bustling, crazy world is kind of refreshing. I know in our family, we try every year to do as much of the Christmas shopping and all of that kind of stuff. We try to have it all done by the beginning of Advent so that when Advent starts, we can just be and we can do church things and family things and not be running around trying to buy and and so forth. We try to keep it simple as much as we can so that we can have moments to listen, to pray, to wait to prepare so that we can try to live into the light. That's the challenge. That's what they dealt with then, and that's what I think we deal with now. Fear could, and we heard about this last week, fear could drive us to all sorts of, of responses and tactics, or it could shut us down. Or we could let the fear go, and we could just trust God's doing something. God's on the move even when it's quiet even when it seems like these last days are just stretching on and on and on and on
1: one of my favorite
0: books uh, huge, huge book The Count of Monte Cristo anybody read that? Not the movie, but I actually read the long book. Alright. Well, uh, it's a great book, long and circuitous, and it meanders all around, and, and, uh, the movie is okay, uh, pretty good, but it does focus a little too much on, on revenge, because who doesn't love a good revenge story? But you see, the story itself is really about how revenge will never fulfill us. And when you finally get to the end, you know the, this, this count. He's this, this man. He's not a count. He's been um, uh, taken advantage of and imprisoned, his life was taken away from him. And and everything bad you can imagine has taken place to him. And then he finally gets out of out of prison. He sets up this whole fake life, finds a treasure, and and he gets revenge in some ways. But all along the way, he realizes this isn't fulfilling. This revenge, these, these normal goals that the world tells us to have, it's not fulfilling. And he finally ends in a place where at the very, very end, the whole giant, and it is big, book comes to the end and there's a, there's a knock on the door and there's some words that are exchanged uh, with a young man who he, he realizes is the future. That hope lies in our, our children and in new beginnings, and not in in revenge. And this line is given: all human wisdom is summed up in these two words, wait and hope. The whole book is about acting and like fear until the very end, when he realizes it's about waiting and it's about hoping that the world can be different. That our lives can be different. That God, who's very real in this story, can and will do something new. Wait and hope. This is what Advent is all about. We wait in the Lord. We hope in the Lord. This is what Paul adds in that section as we end. We don't simply wait. We don't simply hope. But we put on the Lord. And so we can do what seems impossible. We can wait. We can endure in the Lord. We can hope in the Lord. Three takeaways, real quick. The first is that the way that we live today reflects our hope about tomorrow. Think about it. These exercises are good to do every once in a while. Pause your life. Spend an evening and reflect. What does my life look like right now? You know, I've heard the things about like look at your checkbook if you're one of those people who actually keeps a checkbook anymore. Um, and what does it say about your priorities? The same thing. Look at your life. What 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 are your actions? What are your interactions? Things like that. What your choices? What do those things say about what you believe about tomorrow? Are you afraid about tomorrow, or does that fear give way to hope? Are you a person of of radical optimism? Radical optimism of grace. Phineas Prazee talked about that. The way you live today should reflect your hope for tomorrow, not your fear. Fears are real. You'll experience them. Life is challenging. I get that. But our hope must endure. The second is that we have to live into the light and not in the dark. That means others can see us As well, that's a reminder. So we have to live as those in the light and not in the darkness. But with that comes an awareness that other people can see us too. So just like hopefully you'll take some time here and there to reflect about your life and your choices and what does it say about your belief about tomorrow, know that others do that too. And they're usually more, they have a finer tooth comb than we do. Third, during Advent, we remember that our hope is found in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Not in anything else. It's not in the presence. It's not in can we pull off the perfect dinner or the perfect party or the perfect giving or whatever. It's not if we can accurately predict when Jesus will return, because you're not. It's in the hope that He will return and the living today like we are ready like the light is shining on us and we are unashamed and happy to be in his light. As we begin this Advent journey, let us journey in hope. And for Paul, who we just have read here, hope is not the way we use it. As I close, hope for us today is often, I really hope that I get a Barbie camper or a puppy, that's a hard one because you don't have a lot of control over that, right? I really hope that I will win the lottery or something. Yeah, maybe, right? I really hope it will snow tomorrow. Well, the weather says it's going to be 56 or something like that. For Paul, hope is an assured thing. It is going to happen. You just don't know exactly when it's going to happen. The time. The time. So you'd say something like, I really hope that I'm going to um, get out of here and go to lunch. Okay, maybe that's what you're hoping. It's going to happen. I I could wander around for five more minutes or I could bring it to a close, but it's going to happen. For Paul, biblical hope is a sure thing just with an unknown temporal end. You don't know exactly when he will return, but he will return. That's at least how the concept of hope is used in Paul and in the New Testament. It's a sure thing. So as we begin this season of Advent, let us begin a season of hope. Let us spend moments in the days ahead where we slow down and we think, this is what this is all about. I hope in this in a real and secure way. I'll lean into this. I'll wait and I'll hope. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people of hope. May, may that be said of us, that people would look at us and think they're not afraid, they're not scared. They're weird because they they believe that Jesus will return and they treat others that way and they're kind and they're caring. They give to all these other organizations. They help in all these ways. They help each other. And they do so because they, they put on the Lord Jesus and they wait and they hope in Him. Let that be said of us. Let us have a blessed and holy Advent as we prepare not just for Christmas parties and, and, and things like that, but we prepare to once again receive Your birth. As we prepare to, to at some point in the future to receive Your return. And that we live ready for that now. That is our hope. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen. 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 Thank you.